0: Well, hello, I'm Tony Sager with the Center for Internet Security, and welcome back to our podcast series, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm joined this week by our guest, our very own Chief Technology Officer, Kathleen Moriarty, And our topic today is about the role of service providers in uh, cybersecurity. But, you know, having uh, talked to Kathleen a lot and seen her work we will probably cover the entire landscape of the future of cybersecurity and some of the big things that are coming on the horizon that could really give us hope in doing much better defensively, both for large enterprises, but also for the small. So welcome, Kathleen. Uh, Welcome back to our podcast series uh, also. And if you could remind the readers a little bit about your background and your distinguished career.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, as Tony mentioned, I'm the CTO for Center for Internet Security. And prior to joining CIS, I was in the office of the CTO for Dell and prior to that EMC for, for a while. And during that time, I had the honor to serve as one of the nominated and elected security area directors in the Internet Engineering Task Force and also on the Internet Engineering Steering Group. That was a a pivotal experience in terms of my thoughts for uh, our discussion today, because I had the opportunity to read documents on all the newest standards for the internet. Uh, Every other week I was reading 400 pages for four years. right? And so it gives you a really nice purview of what's happening in the industry, what different companies are pursuing what technologies, and it's really forward thinking because it takes a while for these documents to become published and then implemented, and so you can see an interesting trajectory when you're looking at that broad span, and I've done lots of security things prior to that.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, Kathleen, i often joke joked that my career, I, I, I got to see, I uh, got to witness failure at very large scale over and over again, which really shaped my worldview. You got to see, I'll call it big ideas and future thinking at scale, right? And to try and pull all that together into, into some coherency. And let me just ask you a sort of a, a beginner question here around what, what I I've seen you speak several times and you address uh, more elegantly than I will state it, but I call it the build it, build it yourself remodel of cybersecurity. That's where old folks like me grew up, right? You buy technology, you have a business problem to solve, you get security advice, you might buy some security tools, and you somehow magically put it all together and survive. And, you know, I think part of your theme is a, about how that doesn't really scale or how the complexity of that. Talk to me a little bit about how you'd characterize the state of play, both for individual enterprises, but also for the the system as a whole, sort of talking about that model.
1: You characterized it well. We've had all of these products that have favored performance and features over security. And so vendors got them out the door, creating an opportunity for additional vendors. So instead of having those initial products secure, you'd have another vendor who would come in and secure the insecure product. And typically it was done with a denialist approach. Antivirus is a great example of a denialist approach, right? We collect all of these signatures, hundreds and thousands, and who knows how many signatures today. And that list is checked to see, do you have any hashes that match a known malware file? Instead of going after the allow list, where you might understand all of the software on your system and anything that is not expected would be the exception and flag the anomaly and the the possible problem with your system right and so that gets towards a built-in approach that the NTIA software bill of materials goes after because you'll be able to understand what software is on my system what software do I expect on my system and then anything else shouldn't be there
0: mm-hmm. yeah this idea i, I think you know, so i'm old enough to remember the uh you know oh my gosh you know a virus anti-virus we called it back then signature set right hundreds thousands of wow fits on a floppy disk you know can download in seconds <laughs> uh, you know that those it seems pretty quaint by today's standards right the idea was there were bad things out there someone can identify the bad thing uh, characterize it in a way and share that with others either sort of manually or through a vendor you know you're you're sort of learning from others which is a good thing right but the scalability right i mean anybody in criminality who's not doing this is you know is wasting their time so therefore that that approach right monitor for the bad the things that i believe to be bad or unknown you, you know really seems overwhelmed by the problem the way you described it
1: right and we keep replicating that approach and it's absolutely the wrong way to go about this. Another great example is the whole threat indicator market. It's a flooded market with just tons of vendors, and the companies that can afford to get threat indicator feeds into their organizations, you know get about eight of those feeds. They aggregate the data because they're afraid to miss a single indicator. And that's a lot of work because they not only pull in and aggregate this data, but then they have to manually, in many cases, apply it out to their infrastructure, which is a whole bunch of other boxes that were add-ons to protect some deficiency in some other tool. So the idea is, can we get away from all of these add-on products? Can we move more towards built-in security, which would enable us to understand what is on our systems. What are the expected benchmarks? If you're thinking about CIS benchmarks, what are the measurements? What are the policy settings that I expect? Anything else should be unexpected. And then with software, that's another complementary aspect. If we can get to that allow list approach, and then finally behaviors, which might require AI, ML, we'll see what happens in that space. But that would be the other angle in terms of how do we get to a full set of allow lists which would let us move to fully encrypted networks because then we won't need the interception boxes either right that are are looking at traffic on the wire because we already know our systems are only running what we expect
0: yeah it feels like the um you know so this idea that you started from right we have we have uh, components with flaws and you know any product of humans will have, will have flaws at some level, but you know the need to make up for that, right? To say it's, it's unknown. And, and my vendor friends used to joke back in the day uh, when PCs really took off. You know, if you're second to market, you're last to market, right? So we we got in this model where we're we became used to flawed products, you know, and then not just you know nuanced, you know, highly unique circumstance flaws, but things that were just frankly software errors, right? Things that were in theory, preventable, and yet that's that's the market that we you know that we have uh, accepted, and and then shifting to that right. So there there have been for decades, and there are on the horizon ways to improve the pieces, but the pieces will always be you know have, have challenges and flaws. But I, I think of it as, um, you, you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, and, and I think this is a lot of your thinking, right? Uh, security is a system effect. <laughs> we're we're going to put things together and they're not all perfect things. And so designing so that we are not sort of looking for all possible cases, but sort of managing things whose properties we know something about. I think that's sort of inherent in the in the way you talk about like architectures or about um, how, how we think of this at a system level, vice in a box level.
1: And that raises a really great point on the trend for uh, DevSecOps. So we're going to continue to have flaws, but how do we, recover from those flaws quickly? How do we get patches out quickly? And also how do we build resilience into our systems so that we could start fresh when we need? And in terms of how do we recover from those flaws, the the trend towards DevSecOps has us writing code in uh, modules that are more separable, which means you can patch them more easily without impacting other code. So what does that mean? you know, uh, Patch Tuesday, you push out a whole bunch of patches, each individual organization doesn't need to do the testing that they needed to do in the past in this new model, because you won't have the impact on other code that we've had in the past, right? So your unrelated application won't crash because the patch was focused on a particular module and, and and there wasn't spread to uh, impact other modules.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I always, you know, it always struck me as kind of a vicious cycle, right? You know, this flaws patching. Why don't they patch right away? Well, because no one knows what the effect is going to be, and well, why does no one know what the effect is going to be? It's because <laughs> we didn't design right for this resilience, right? For this, how how do I uh, bound the effects of a change, you know, inherently in the system? And so, yeah, if we if we're going to break that cycle, it's going to take you know not just better software but better resilient management right better sort of architectures that isolate that so i think that's a you know and then that's as a um again a, a big thinking about this this is about system level effects and you know having watched professional bad guys for a living for most of my living life also right the bad guy insecurity is a system effect right they're looking for those uh, interfaces and cracks and, and how thought something talks to something right so that they are you know, it gives them the opportunity for for openings in there. so yeah I, I think that's all fair and you know part of the um, you know how are we going to think differently about how do we change the game? you know a lot of security and I think I, you've spoken about this before you know we want to distinguish between how do I play the current game faster, right uh, because we have to survive, but what do I need to start putting in place to change the game entirely? Can you talk about some of the things that are really about that second part because that's that's your you know really your wheelhouse. Of,
1: Yes. So, and you're right, we do have to go on the current track until we reach a point where we can pivot. Um, so the themes of DevSecOps, if software providers out there are able to adopt those principles and think about minimizing code, minimizing interaction between code where possible, they'll be able to move towards uh, immediate updates to systems. And that could greatly help with the day one attack problem that we have where a vulnerability is announced, a patch is released, and threat actors immediately glom onto that and use it to break into systems because they're waiting for their downtime window to rectify that particular vulnerability. Um, So moving towards a smaller attack surface with code and modularizing code is going to go a long way uh, toward that and then characterizing it in the form of an SBOM, this the software bill of materials is, is another step so that people know what's on their systems and we can start to move towards an allow list. Um, adoption of the CIS benchmarks is another really great practice and not just adoption. So, I mean, in the future, what I would love to see is you have a system, you purchase it, um, or a cloud instance, and it comes with the benchmarks pre-configured so you know your policy settings and your measurements are as expected to your required security configurations. But not only that, it's verified and done in a way that does not require any expertise on site. And, you know, that really comes to the heart of part of the uh, CIS in that we are helping the state, local, tribal, and territorial networks. We really like to think about how do we help the underserved and the under-resourced? So how do we get away from the requirements of them um, having to do this basic security configuration? And um, yeah, if we're able to take those steps, we could even uh, move to completely automated inventory of assets and of software and we could actually achieve having controls one and two fully automated, right? They're some of the most difficult and most important controls to implement. We could get that done. I think it's completely realistic that we could make that very large jump in the next few years.
0: You know, Kathleen, as as usual, you hit on two monster ideas, giant, big ideas. You know, in that in that brief answer. So, so the first I'll address is the, um, I'll call the the um, integration of you know better technology, right, with real life operations. So I, again, I grew up in the kind of classical computer security days. You know, we we will build you know the mathematically verified, kernelized, etc. You know. We'll be able to demonstrate, assert properties, make proofs about them. The technology will be so good, and oh, and by the way, yeah, people are going to use it for stuff. But you know, hey, that's 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 something else. But when you look at things like uh, knowing the um, the roots of the software that you're running, where did it come from, right? that is essential to being able to look at system effects because your so- your software is not coming from what you wrote it's coming from what the world wrote and so a flaw somewhere could easily be impactful in your risk decision so that's you know that takes the problem from the theoretical to the everywhere from you know how a software is created to how it gets used what's what the system is configured on and that that, that connect connectivity, you know, in my view, was always missing in in the early days of, of thinking about this problem. Uh, related to that, the use of benchmarks, right? You know, I was involved, again, look, from the government side, looking at people building very complex, modern operating systems. Oh, and you're going to configure it. Well, yeah, you know, you'll worry about that. There'll be a DOD standard or a you know, U.S. government standard or whatever. But, you know, that has a huge impact on the attack surface. So you want to connect those, right? You want sort of better but run better, managed better. And then, you know, this is an ongoing thing, right? So it's not about an event, it's about the machinery. So that, you know, you've, I think you've captured one of the really big ideas in this whole business. And the second, uh, we can talk a little bit more about, but this this notion of underserved, you know, as we can share, uh, at, at CIS, we lots of folks are counting on us, including lots of really small and under-resourced, under-equipped uh, enterprises. And so, you know, they are not going to, um, Uh, be able to uh, subscribe to a threat feed and make sense of it, right? They're not running complicated tools. They're not bringing in expensive consultants. And that's not a rarity and that is likely most of our economy. And so, you know, those things that you talked about and the hope that automation can remove some of that, right? That's essential to the future of our economy. And the last last point I'll riff off on yours is, uh, well, well, you know, they're small. They don't really matter, right? They're not contribute to the national. <laughs> okay, anyone who thinks they're isolated from the environment, big, small, or not, is not paying attention, right? And we're seeing it in examples every day where what you might think of as relatively isolated or small or unimportant technology contributes mightily to some massive problem. So talk about the, the sort of how all this fits together. I mean, the the this being able to stand back and look at the system, you know, at the system level is really important, isn't it?
1: Yes, I'm going to hit on the threat piece, right? Because uh, these small organizations and what we're thinking about um, for SLTTs, SLTT specifically, I mean, think of the data your town clerk has on you. They have your, your, some family member's birth certificate or your birth certificate. Um, they have all sorts of records that are used in ways to verify your identity. Um, these are, in important pieces of information. K through 12 schools are also encompassed in that. There's a lot of data held at K through 12 schools as well. These are very important organizations to uh, protect and ensure that they have built-in security and don't require the expertise that we're currently requiring of them.
0: Yeah, the, the notion that we're gonna train everyone to defend themselves, you know, just doesn't hold water. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And as you said, you know, you want much more of this to be built into the way that we operate, not sort of added on after we figure out how bad things are. Let me ask you one question that came up. You so you talked about benchmarks there, and I know you've thought about this a lot, right? So, this is also talked about. Uh, one of our favorite topics together is about trust and the dynamics of trust, right? So it's not about we're not going to get perfect components, but you might say I've got a um, you know components that I I believe have reasonable security properties. I'm willing to take from a trusted source, maybe CIS, right? The benchmark for how should it be configured? But how is that trust conveyed, right? How would someone, you know, it's not good enough to, at the end of the day, we're not building technology for technology's sake. We're building technology so that people can live their lives make risky decisions with some level of confidence, right? That that's a good decision, transfer money, you know, uh, turn over my health records or whatever. So talk to us a little bit about the sort of notion of trust where I create it and how it gets conveyed for when it actually gets used by enterprises or people.
1: Sure. So if you're talking about benchmarks, the process to create benchmarks um, it involves a team of experts to collaborate to determine what decisions should be made. And could there be a problem with a benchmark? Yes. And then it could be corrected, right? So there's an update process to correct those over time. Some of the benchmarks have been around, I guess, for more than 20 years. I know I was using um, what we now call the benchmarks as a NSA hardening guides, back in the nineties, the late nineties, I remember using them, right? So, I mean, we would take one of those and we would apply it to a system and create an image and then deploy out that image. And that's the process a lot of organizations are still using today. Um, So we have built the trust in those benchmarks. Uh, We've maintained the expert pool. We've grown the expert pool in many cases. And we've also tailored the set of experts to specific benchmarks so that they can be trusted, right? So that they've really been tested to provide an assurance of the efficacy of the controls recommended.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, so we didn't eliminate humans. We actually have to start with a human process, right? Of analysis and trust and independence, right? That's one of the things that CIS brings and, and others. And so we create something, right? And I always thought of it this way, Kathleen, is that once we go to all that trouble to create confidence or assurance in this thing. We don't want to give that up. Right. When it goes to the vendor, when it goes, you know, when it's implemented in a protocol, et cetera. So, uh, share with us some of the the mechanisms that you think of the future that will help us with those kinds of problems with sort of conveying that, that throughout the rest of the life cycle of the technology.
1: Sure. So if you think about the future and the life cycle, Well, today we have many, many organizations that are implementing the benchmarks individually and individually making these decisions. What if we shifted that and the vendors were fully providing the benchmarks implemented? Um, You'd walk towards a standard and that standard would be tested even more and more because within the benchmark, you can make policy decisions. Right. And so it's, it's easy to make a decision that could cause harm. uh, But if it's done by a vendor, CIS does a validation on that benchmark implementation. Right. So we provide an assurance that the benchmark has been met and that certification process is important. Um, They're also sharing this out with many organizations. And so that the same implementation of the benchmark is continually tested. If there is a tweak in the future, they might be able to push out an update to address that configuration problem. Additionally, the verification process for controls on systems has been difficult, right? It has required, and in many cases still requires, individual configuration at every organization. Um, In cloud-based systems, it's not necessarily simple yet, right? There's still some customization done. There's still um, some expertise required on the part of the organization using that image. So there's a technology called attestation, and it's not going to solve every problem, but I think it's going to help quite a bit in this space because it can do some of the uh, verification in a very automated way. Where some level of remediation can happen as well. And the reason I have such faith in this is from my work at Dell in the office of the CTO, I had the opportunity to work with the client team, the server team, and the storage team who all implemented individually on those platforms attestation to a root of trust for firmware and, and bio so that you know you're to provide a trusted boot process. So the Trusted Boot Process is aligned to NIST 800-193 and further specified in the Trusted Computing Group's Reference Integrity Measurements. And so it's very precise. If something, a particular process is not, or policy or measurement is not as expected, there's a forced restart And so if you think about Zero Trust models, this fits in really nicely in how Zero Trust requires a verification between modules. So at the firmware level, we've achieved this. Now we just have to go up the stack. And so in this regard, and if you think about that verification piece and the reliance of one software package being verified before the next or even modules within a software package, Being verified, it ties very nicely into that requirement in NIST's zero trust architecture.
0: Yeah, I get. So the you know again we we started with the human process, right? Humans sort of making a judgment call about this is the, the the optimal way to operate this component, and then you know those are all great examples of building the technical machinery that sort of moves it from this human process right into the actual operation of a system. So when it boots, you're in effect sort of revalidating the trust, right? You're saying, oh, yes, I'm coming to a state that has been, um, you know, described or validated as a, um, you know, as a desirable one, right? And I can say that the configuration ties back to its source, you know, a trusted, independent source, et cetera. And so all those machinery, right? You know, that, that's that been years in the making, a lot, a lot going in there. And as you point out, th- these are, this is not one thing. This is. You know, major major vendors thinking through lots of machinery to put in place that allows then all this flexibility to really to look at trust. And so the the the, the phrase of the day, right? Zero trust. And uh, talk a little bit more for the audience about that. So so these are the kind of mach- machinery we need. Right. And yeah. I always say a zero trust is brilliantly named. You know, it's it's not that we don't have trust. It's that we don't start with trust. We generate trust. right? We have to create trust at a transaction or a data or a process level. But, you know, and uh, the phrase has been around, but there are, there are signs of hope here. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of things that you're seeing and encouraging in terms of um, uh, how, how we make that real in our environments?
1: Sure. So I point to the firmware example as providing hope, right? We have the capability to provide this completely automated verification at boot and also I'll add at runtime. So it's not just at boot, you know, because you could have a system that's up for a year and you'll want to re-verify the components that you're basing your root of trust on. In this space, there's been a lot of work to uh, further build on attestation. And, you know, how do we verify higher level applications? In terms of where we're also seeing progress in this capability, uh, I think containers is a good space to take a look at. There are multiple vendors who have attestation at some level working within containers. It might be just that you can verify the hash of a container is as expected or some individual components of that container is as expected, but we can build on that. And the, the problem and why this takes time is that if you fail a policy or measurement and you're too strict on what the expectation is, your system might not boot, right? It becomes a brick. And so it's a delicate balance. And that's why this isn't something that can happen overnight, However, that complete level of automation is essential because we are not even in a cat and mouse game anymore. Um, You know, every nation is within every other nation now, and we've kind of reached a cyber Cold War position, right? And it's really quite frightening. Um, I don't see that there's any other way out except for moving to built-in security. And I, I feel like we've, we've hit that tipping point where it's essential that vendors build in security and service providers think about how they provide built-in security. And we get away from this model where we have a 3.5 million person security professional deficit and move to one that just collapses it. With better architectures and patterns that scale. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, your your point is, well. You know, there's when you hear those numbers, right? That's that's about how we today perceive the workforce gap, and that's important. We we have to survive to fight another day. But you know, if you think of it dispassionately, you think, well, what what is the gap? I wish I had. Right? <laughs> what's the workforce composition that we wish we had? Do we really want people drowning and missing patches and bad configurations and? And, you know, whenever I think of the threat feed problem, I think of some poor soul, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, a attempting to listen to, a, you know, a thousand police monitors of, of local local criminal activity, listening for the, the one or two that might actually <laughs> apply to them. That's the way it feels like to be just hopeless, you know, just drowning in this stuff. And so, yeah, so, uh, so I knew you would build us to the topic of service providers and the role there, right? How much how much of this really needs to be built in, right? Our expectations of some level of security need to be raised. You know, the reality of what we get and that we don't have to worry about as individual enterprises is, is really important. Any any other sort of signs of hope on the horizon from the service provider pr- uh, perspective? What things should they be doing? What should we all be encouraging them to do or asking them to do, you know, over the next couple of years to, to help us improve?
1: So, service providers have gone a long way in efforts like manners, the mutually agreed norms for routing security from uh, the internet society. And with that, the the first piece that they did—it's really going to sound simple—was ingress and egress filtering for all of their customers. But that prevents spoofing attacks, and this is something I, I worked at a service provider. Very early in my career, actually, the first commercial service provider, PSINET, who doesn't exist anymore. And, um, this was standard practice back in 1995. And, you know, we would just apply the, um, the ingress and egress filtering as standard practice. And then come to find out years later when Manner started out, that wasn't happening at every service provider. And so the Internet Society took this on and, you know put a really good concerted effort into improving that and it has made a large difference and they're also working on um uh RPKI and so these are efforts that have been taken on and um you know could have a large benefit um and there's also pushes for things like DNSSEC now we're we're not far enough yet With DNSSEC. We're not far enough yet with, uh, so DNSSEC is uh, domain name service security. And we're also not far enough with email authentication protocols like uh, DMARC and the supporting protocols, Domain Key Identify, DKIM, and um, the Sender Policy Framework, SPF. These are things that we should work with our service providers or encourage service providers to try to take on because if every entity had authenticated email and we knew that email coming out of every domain was from that domain and it was from the expected mail servers, that would go a long way towards reducing phishing attacks, right? Because then you could set up those blocking filters that you're only accepting authenticated mail. Um, so these measures could go a very long way uh, just towards reducing some of the biggest threats. And, and that in particular is an important one because uh, phishing attacks are one of the, the biggest initial attack vectors to get into organizations and exploit them more fully. Um, and even for a supply chain attack it might be that a phishing attack is used to get into that uh, supplier and then the attacker embeds some sort of exploit in code that goes out to every entity using that code. Um, So these are important measures that could make a big difference. And with DNSSEC setting up DNS security, providers could also be providing DNSSEC verification services. So that they're making sure that the DNSSEC is set up correctly, or even just making that standard as part of their DNS services they offer to any customers. So those are just a few examples.
0: No, those are great, and you know some of them have been around, and some seem to be picking up momentum. You know, and uh, and some of them seem so foundational, like the examples you gave. Right? Do I know the email is coming from this, you know the the, right, uh, the uh, stated domain? Um, yeah you know, but it tells you something about how um th- these are not conceptually hard problems. These are operationally hard problems, right And sometimes it you know what what does it take to tip the scale? Right? is it a market force thing right? do do buyers need to demand it? Uh, you know do regulators need to insist upon it how do we how we pull those together right? so again, we now we move from the technical domain really into the, into the role of humans here and how do we encourage the right behavior, right how we how do we help point out or get people to demand things in a way that makes sense to vendors to you know to supply?
1: That's a great point. And for me, it's the threat landscape, right? I think we're at a pretty frightening place right now. Um, you know, we have big attacks like solar winds that happens, and it was extremely disruptive to thousands of organizations who the advice given to them was, the best practice is wipe and reimage any system that's been impacted. And you're not going to get rid of the threat actors unless you do that. And so for some organizations, that's a big lift, but a very necessary step to eradicate the threat actor from your environment. But then take it a step further. We know the threat actor, um, or at least it's been shown it, it, it was from Russia. Data was exfiltrated from a number of organizations. So in my mind, that attack's not even over yet. Right? So even if you've recovered your systems, what are we going to see in the future? Because Russia has a pattern of disruption. Right? How can they sow discord in their target? And so with the data, you know, how are they going to use that? Um, so for me, I think we're at a we're at a really critical point that if we don't start addressing these threats, we're going to be in this perpetual cycle of disruption. Um, And then from other nations, it's a big concern on intellectual property. Uh, Do you have any more economic advantages if all of your intellectual property is, is stolen, used, and other products are made and possibly made better than yours because they had a baseline to start from?
0: No, I think your, you know, your your point is another deep one, Kathleen, which is this. So even a given, you know, we, what we'd like to say is, oh, bad thing happened, we cleaned up and we moved on, <laughs> but that may be just the beginning of the problem, right? And the intersection between uh, criminality and nation-state interests is a pretty blurry one. So, you know, what is the real motivation for a particular event, and what will be the use of the data that you know? And it might not be over for quite some time. So you have to. You know, there's no there's no rest for the weary here. There's no, okay, We, we that was bad. And we cleaned it up and moved on. There's, in fact, a, a really deep problem here for the nation.
1: Absolutely. And the, the culture of the attacking nation has had patterns that have held true, but they may also change, right? So, I mean, patterns do change. Cultural norms and identities can shift. Um, we, we are more global than we've ever been before. So some of that can shift. Uh, but we have seen some of the patterns hold very true, like the ones I mentioned. You know, at least since the Cold War, from kinetic even to cyber.
0: No, I think that's, yeah, that that is a uh, something that I, I used to remind people of, in back in my government days, right? It's act. You know, people say, "Well, we we just got a penetration test team, and they act penetration uh, test team and they act like the bad guy." Well, you know, really emulating a bad guy is a lot harder than it sounds for all those reasons that you named right it's it's beyond technology they have a risk model too right some don't like to get caught and will spend lots of money to avoid it or some have different uh, cultural values about loss of life or what you know what constitutes uh, acceptable behavior And if you don't account for that, you don't really get the value that you would like to have, right? If you really want to emulate the adversary, and I I guess it's good and bad news, right? We don't really need to spend much time emulating if they're just going to keep attacking us. We get plenty to learn from, right? Every day is another learning day for us. So so all all those are wonderful. Uh, And, uh, you um, you know, I appreciate one of the things that you brought to the company is this Uh, really an eye towards the future while while standing in the present, right? How are we going to get to where we're going to go? And what are the things we should be looking for that will help guide us to these, to, you know, past the swamp of the day-to-day and uh, not to trivialize, but the the day-to-day things that we just have to do to survive. And yet, Take the steps that that uh, are required to improve the game or change the game. So I often say, uh, "That'll wrap up, Kathleen. Uh, always a pleasure, and appreciate your your insight. That uh, you know you don't survive for uh, decades in this business unless you're either a, a complete cynic or a hopeless optimist. <laughs> so I'm on the, I'm the hopeless optimist, but you sound more hopeful than than hopeless. So I appreciate your uh, you know reminding us of big things. On the horizon that we should be looking towards and encouraging uh, to get us kind of out of today's game into, into the next. Any last thoughts you'd care to share with the audience about your thoughts on the business? And uh, you have lots more time ahead of you to uh, to serve the community here. So any other thoughts you'd like to share would be welcomed.
1: Thank you for having me. And uh, you know, I'm just I'm just happy to be part of a team that's looking to make great improvements to help the underserved and to really bridge this this gap that we currently have. So thank you again for having me. Oh, and
0: we appreciate having you on the team, Kathleen. So thanks very much Uh, to the audience. uh, Thanks for joining us for this episode. Uh, Please uh, subscribe by the usual means and don't miss another one. There's always something interesting to talk about here at the Center for Internet Security in our podcast series. So thank you all very much. Catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org.
1: Start secure and stay secure.